Hello and welcome once again to Yester Ladies. Um, this is a very special episode. First of all, get the bad news out of the way first. It's a special episode because it's the last episode of this season, if we want to call our, I don't know. They're seasons. They're seasons, yeah. I guess. Yeah. They're seasons. But we're making them into seasons. <laughs> um, all this to say, uh, we are taking a break. Um, for the summer, which we did last year. So yeah. there's precedent here. It's fine. It's Everybody annual, calm down. Our annual summer break. That's right. You know, we need to go swimming and yeah. drink Mai Tais and Beach things. time, camping time, vacation time. Yeah. yeah. But we decided to go out on a bang. Yes. Heather, what is our topic today? Well, Dana, we are celebrating Canada 150. Woo! Oh my god! So Canada, if you're not a Canadian reader or or listener, sorry, or if you're not a well-informed Canadian, uh, Canada is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. And uh, I really hope that if you're Canadian, you knew that you are aware. I feel like if you're listening to our show, you knew that you're you're an informed Canadian. Yes, hopefully, hopefully there is logos and emblems emblazoned on everything mm-hmm. and every Canadian business and organization are on board with this. So you should probably know. So you really should. Yester ladies has jumped on the bandwagon and we're doing a Canada 150 uh, extravaganza of amazing and impressive Canadian female historical figures. So that's right. Because buckle up. Buckle up indeed. <laughs> <laughs> because we love Canada. Yes. And we love historical ladies. Yes. So it's a marriage made in heaven. There's no better combination here. That's and right. we're going to take you on a ride through time, through <laughs> geography. You're going across the country. You're going all over the place. So get ready. Get ready. It's a big country. Yes. With 150 years of official history and <laughs> many, many, many more years of prehistory. I don't know. <laughs> we have a lot of work to do to expose all these lesser known women and their their awesome efforts i would say there's maybe a couple of ladies here that you have probably heard of um but you may not know a lot about them i think at this point the most famous woman on this list would be viola desmond Mm, currently right because there's a big slash because she's going to be on our currency soon which the five the ten the ten oh the ten of course um, of, course. of course i don't know <laughs> well naturally that's the spot for ladies on the 10 <laughs> she's actually the first woman to go on the 10 but we'll get into that oh there you go uh, heather uh, will get into that i will get into um but aside from miss desmond uh i think most of these women i mean i'd heard of a couple of them mm-hmm. but probably most people have not uh heard of them and if you have heard of them you probably haven't heard too much about them so Lesser known Canadian ladies. Yeah, and we actually dropped some better known Canadian women to add on some lesser known uh, ones that were quite exciting. So, well, yeah, we'll get to that. That'll be our well, grand finale. Yes. Heather's extremely excited about this woman she stumbled across who we bumped Laura Secord for. <laughs> All our listeners are like, she better be good. Yeah. Laura Secord is getting the kick. Don't worry. <laughs> I, she, I, she's good. She's good, let me tell you. Heather was giving me a couple of tidbits about this woman <laughs> and... Uh, yeah. I mean, we all kind of roughly know who Laura Secord is. Yeah, Everybody's. I figured listeners generally know her story. You've so. all seen the Heritage Minute. Right. right. <laughs> On CBC. And you've all visited the chocolate store. <laughs> you've seen her bust in chocolate. That's so. right. You're That's good. right. You know all you need to know then. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, we should probably dive in. Yes. 
Um, so the first lady that we're going to talk about, uh, we're, this is where we've, we did an episode once before where we kind of traded off talking about different ladies and that was our Halloween episode. Oh, the murderers, the murderesses. <laughs> yeah, we still get feedback oh, about that yes. one. There were some good ladies on that list. So we decided to do the same format for today's episode. So we're going to go back and forth. And I think for the most part, the tidbits that we're going to be sharing are fresh to each other. So, you know, you'll get exciting reactions from (laughs) both of us. So the first lady on our list, oh God, bear with me. Gudrid Thor Jarnardotir. Okay. Good job. (laughs) Thank you. I don't know if that was a good job. Uh, I'm just going to call her Gudrid. Um, So this lady was a Viking, and she is the earliest uh, historical lady here in terms of of timeline on our list. So Gudrid was a Viking woman, and of course, the history of Canada, I don't want to imply that the history of Canada began when Europeans arrived (laughs) on the shore. Not at all. As we're all very much aware, there were many, many people here long before that. Um, But we we definitely, don't worry, we definitely have um, a couple of really great First Nations ladies on our list here. But I just thought Gudrid was really cool because... I don't know. She's this Viking woman who doesn't love the Vikings. And she was the first uh, woman not to land in Canada, but the first woman to bear a child in Canada. Yeah. So Gudrid, as far as we know, was born about 950 um, AD. And she was born in Iceland. And uh, I really like, there's a little tidbit, her grandfather had come to Iceland as a slave of Odd the Deep-Minded. <laughs> I know, I need like, that one. <laughs> I really need to name something Odd the Deep-Minded. <laughs> yeah, A-U-D, the Deep-Minded. Wow. Uh, but, oh, I thought it was Odd O-D-D. No, no. His name odd, was Odd. Odd the deep-minded. the Deep-Minded, yeah. Um. Anyway, so that was Gudrid's, Gudrid, sorry, uh, grandfather. Um, he eventually gained his freedom. Uh, and about 10 years after Eric the Red, who is a rather well-known Viking, had led a settlement group to Vinland, which we do know is um, North America. And I, as far as I could tell, they're, they're not 100% sure where precisely Vinland was but like east coast of canada basically some speculation most people think it's probably the furthest east reaches of newfoundland or right but but other provinces and states make claims like i've heard american states on the eastern seaboard be like oh it could be us right and everyone's like no it's not you never know they probably traveled down and that's uh, anyway so uh gudrid was um a young girl who ended up um, moving to Greenland with her family, a uh, very difficult voyage. So this woman made a lot of challenging journeys throughout her life. Um, apparently many people died during that trip, but eventually they arrived in Greenland and she ended up marrying Eric, the red son, Thorstein, Thorstein, whatever. Um, <laughs> and when Thorstein's brother, 
Thorvalder was killed by North Americans, um, Native Americans, I should say. Uh, Thorstein and Gudrid decided to go to Vinland. I, I don't know whether that was to seek revenge but for whatever reason they decided to make the trip and so they attempted it unfortunately again it was like a really difficult trip and her husband Thorstein and many other fellow travelers died on the way of disease and so she ended up returning to Iceland so jump ahead a few years she ends up marrying another guy whose name was Thorfinner well that's actually better they'll start with Thor (laughs) (laughs) he's Thor's yeah he was a wealthy guy um, of royal descent who came from Greenland to Iceland. And after they married, they went on an ex- ex- expedition, there we go, to explore and start a settlement in Vinland. So she finally made it to Vinland. And on this trip, apparently, there was a total of about 60 men and five women. So she was one of these five women. And uh, they took livestock and they got um, permission to use this, like, abandoned house from Eric's eric the red's other son or something the details are sketchy i mean these are vikings keep in mind (laughs) you know like a thousand ad so yeah you can see why it'd be sketchy exactly almost exactly a thousand ad not bc um what we do know is that in the autumn of the year um thousand and four that's hard to say is yeah um gudrid gave birth to the first european born in north america and i don't know what the child's gender or name was but still so they spent three years in vinland and they might have traveled as far south as manhattan um but uh eventually unstable relations with the native american population who the vikings called skraylings i've heard that before yeah same uh, and ended up forcing the vikings to head back to greenland um and eventually, Gudrid, she went back to Iceland, and by that point, she got back to Iceland, and apparently Christianity had become the main deal, so she ended up converting and became a nun. Wow. Yeah. And apparently, just to round out her life, um, so in the 11th century, women almost never traveled alone, but uh, reportedly, Gudrid traveled by foot from Iceland to Rome and supposedly what? met with the Pope and reported about Christian life in Iceland and Greenland oh and maybe even in Vinland, although she wasn't a Christian when she was over here. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's quite the backpacking mm-hmm. track. For this it sure morning. is. Gudrid. Like it sure it. is. All right, so I'm going to tell you about the first Native American on our list. Uh, her name is St. Kateri Takakwitha, and you may have heard or know her as the Lily of the Mohawks. So she's a good name. I like it. She was the first Native American to be canonized uh, as a Roman Catholic saint. So there are um, a small group of Native Americans but uh, canonized, but she was the first. So she is now a Roman Catholic saint, and she was an Algonquin Mohawk laywoman during her life. Um, and what I really enjoy about her, there's some good names in this episode. So her name, Takakwitha, which is Algonquian, means she who bumps into things. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> That's what I read. So I was like, wow, my name should be Takakwitha, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that could be my new name now. But <laughs> Any mic bumps you hear, I swear they're all Heather. <laughs> I will claim all of them. <laughs> yes. It's not true, I'm sure. So, so she was born in 1656 in a Mohawk village called 
Acerninon, Acerninon, which is in present-day New York State, so just south of the St. Lawrence River, pretty close to the Quebec border. Um, and unfortunately, a, a smallpox plague swept the village and killed her family and she contracted it as well and it left her horribly scarred um, especially on her face so she was always she always had a very modest um personality and very soft-spoken but i think part of this uh, the scarring contributed to that so she would they described her as sometimes wearing a blanket over her head a lot like she didn't want to be seen she didn't go to social events within the village um she liked to kind of stay on the outskirts so very introverted and i imagine probably because of uh of these the scarring mm-hmm. so uh, anyway kind of an unfortunate beginning to her life there she was the daughter of a mohawk um uh, chief so you know high up in the village structure but at this point um in native american villages there was a lot of disease there were um, a lot of attacks um, and there was a lot of movement so mm-hmm. villages were being consolidated so there were like algonquins and and iroquois and mohawk and all these different tribes fighting but also amalgamating so if like half your village was wiped out you might amalgamate with a neighboring village to to have a, a you know better lifestyle Anyway, so this happened to her a couple times. So she was moving around. Um, at age 19, so by 1676, some Jesuit priests came to the village with the aim of converting um, the, the members. And most people were not interested, but she was very interested. And mm. it seems like her personality kind of lent, um, lent her an advantage here because she was always very docile, very obedient. She had that kind of personality that they were looking for. So they were, the Jesuits were like overjoyed. <laughs> they were like, this <laughs> is the native gal for us. <laughs> so um, they baptized her and they renamed her after St. Catherine. So that's how she gets Cattery as her first name. Mm. Um, and also she, before she converted, she had refused to marry. So I was reading that usually around eight, uh, sorry, usually around 13 um, girls in her tribe started getting some family pressure to marry, at least look around. Um, and she just like completely refused, like had no interest. And at one point they were telling a story where her aunts were like, oh, we'll set her up with this guy. And they had this young man go over and sit next to her at a social <laughs> gathering and, and offer her a corn dish. And it was a tradition that if the young woman accepted the corn dish. It interested. She was it indicated that she was interested. In the young man. So he offers her this dish, and she's like not into it and leaves. <laughs> so, so her aunts were like putting all this pressure. Yeah, and uh, she just refuses so long that everybody gives up. And they're like, ah, they write her off as an old maid. Uh, I think she was like seventeen when, oh my when God. this happens. Yep, work gallery. So they kind of accept. Okay, she's just a spinster, <laughs> right? And she really seemed to want it that way because. They, you know, they were interested young men. So good for so, her. There you go. Follow your dreams. Um, and in 1677, after she's been baptized and con- converted and baptized, uh, she leaves her village and moves into the Jesuit mission village um, of Kanawake, uh, which is just south of Montreal. She lives there for a couple years until her death. She died quite young. Hmm. Um, at one point, the village is attacked by Mohican warriors. The villagers fight them off, and Cattery wow. joins with other girls who are helping the priests tend to the wounded and bury the dead and bring food and water to the people who are defending the village. So she's quiet but helpful. <laughs> um, and she she took a devout vow of perpetual virginity. Oh, <laughs> so I but she wasn't a nun. She was not a nun, but she had a couple friends and mentors in her circle who, when they found out about nuns because they'd never heard of nuns before, they were like, "Oh my god, we want to be nuns." <laughs> But there was no, like, apparatus in place to do that. Right. So later, the church, um, while they did canonize her, they were also sort of recognized that she would have been a nun if that had been open to her. Like, if huh. there had, they wanted to, her and her friends wanted to start 
an order, an order. They just didn't have like the bureaucracy to do that. So she really would have been enough, but just didn't have the opportunity. Uh, So she died at age 24 in 1680. And this is where things start getting mystical. So witnesses reported that her scars vanished on her face and it started, uh, it appeared radiant and beautiful like minutes after her death. And she appeared to three people right after her death, her closest, uh, the priest and then a couple of her closest friends. Um, And after this, people started making pilgrimages to her gravesite and miracles were reported and enough evidence was accrued that eventually um, in 1980, Pope John Paul beatified her. And then in 2012, so just quite recently, uh, Pope Benedict canonized her. So there you go. She's the first Native American saint. Woohoo! Pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. I like it. All right. So moving right along in history, uh, we're going to move up to Marianne Shad, who um, she might be one of the women on this list who you've maybe heard of. Uh, She's a pretty decently well-known figure in Canadian black history and uh, American black history because she straddled the border and kind of moved back and forth throughout her life. And in local history. And in local history, exactly. Which is one of the... From Windsor, Rising County. One of the big reasons I wanted to cover her. I've always really liked her. Likewise. Yeah. So Marianne Shad was born in 1823 to free parents in Wilmington, Delaware. And she was the oldest of 13 children. Big families back then. (laughs) So um, her family highly valued education. And so when Delaware decided as a state that it was now going to be illegal to educate African-American children, uh, they rightfully so, I think, moved their family to Pennsylvania. And Marianne had a Quaker education. Oh, very cool. Yeah, which is really cool. So uh, with that education, again, this was something that she very highly valued, I'm sure, based on her family background. Um, And so she became a teacher herself, and she taught as an adult throughout the Northeastern states um, and kind of before this period, just wanted to insert that her parents were very active on the Underground Railroad. So she also grew up with a, I mean, I think it'd be hard not to do as a, as a black American at that time with a heavy sense of, you know, the injustice and, and taking action, which I think is pretty cool. So, um, when the fugitive slave law was passed in 1850 in the U S which was briefly, um, a law that allowed slave catchers and owners to pursue escaped slaves, um, above the, um, oh, what's the parallel? The like Mason Dixon, Mason no. Dixon. Oh no, or no, no, no. The, um, 42nd, 42nd, 39th parallel, whatever yeah. the parallel, that parallel, <laughs> the like halfway horizontal line in the U S. So basically they were allowed to pursue slaves and try to capture them in the Northern States, which they and had free States and in free States. So, exactly. That's the point. Yes. And so it made it Whereas before, escaping slaves could get past, you know, get to a free state and be safe. Uh, after 1850, they were no longer safe. So um, uh, I think this even being uh, free blacks, um, Marianne and her brother, I mean, this was still a threat to people who were free blacks. They were often captured and taken into slavery with the bogus claim that they had been slaves. So it really wasn't safe for black people anywhere in the U S at that point. So it was at that point that, um, Marianne and her brother decided to emigrate to Canada where slaves were safe because they were free. Uh, Um, so they actually, uh, settled in Windsor 
which is very exciting because if you don't know, Heather and I are, are sitting in Windsor right now or almost. Well, LaSalle, LaSalle, but close, close to the border of close Windsor. The border, yeah. Dana lives in Windsor. I do, yeah. Um, so having moved to Windsor, Marianne continues her educational passion and uh, she wrote educational books talking about the advantages of moving to Canada for settlers willing to work. Um, and she also set up an integrated school in Windsor uh, that was open to anybody who could afford it. So it wasn't, I like, I like that yeah. too, that it wasn't even just a, a black school. It was, it was open to anyone. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So about the same period, she also began a very now well-known newspaper called the Provincial Freeman, again, run out of Windsor, uh, at least in the early days. And the point was to promote information about the successes of black people living in freedom in Canada. And so she was the first black woman in North America to publish a newspaper. Um, although unfortunately <laughs> she had to have a man stand in for her as the uh, oh, no. like name, apparent publisher, although she was definitely right. running the show right. from everything I've always read. Um, and you really should look up more about the provincial Freeman and Marianne Shad because she, she was pretty awesome i read that it was the first newspaper published by a woman in canada not oh, even a colored wow. woman i could be wrong on that but i think i remember being impressed that yeah that it was a colored woman that that may be the case yeah. i mean given the time period yeah. um because this was sorry i didn't say this was 1853 uh that she started the newspaper it ran until 1860 so kind of up until the civil war um, and she provided strong editorial commentary, culture, and information about things going on in other places. And it was a pretty popular paper at the time and circulated throughout Canada and in uh, other major northern cities across the U.S. Uh, so eventually she moved to St. Catharines and then Toronto. Eventually she married uh, Thomas Carey and became Mary Ann Shad. Carrie is her full name, uh, in 1856. Eventually she ended up returning to the U S but before she did that, she got her Canadian citizenship, nice. which is awesome. Um, and I, I can kind of see why she returned to the U S probably to motivated largely, um, by the civil war and trying to make a difference there because she became a recruitment agent, hmm. uh, to support the union side during the civil war. Uh, eventually she uh, moved to Washington DC where she continued to teach. And then she ended up, um, going to law school and became the first black woman to complete this degree, this degree at Howard university and only the second black woman in the U S to earn a law degree. And she did this at the age of 60. No. Yeah. That's awesome. Isn't that fantastic? She just gets better and better. I know. She's so cool. <laughs> she is so cool. I love that. Yeah. So it's never too late to become right. a lawyer if you really want to do it. You're 58 and sitting out there like, law is not in my future. You, got no <laughs> you are wrong, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she went on to write continually for newspapers, including the National Era and the People's Advocate. And then in 1880, she organized the Colored Women's Progressive Franchise. Um, she just kept starting things. Yeah. It's really awesome. Um, and then, you know, it got to the point, the suffrage movement was kind of humming along by this point, And she ended up joining the National Women's uh, Suffrage Association. And she worked with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, and she also, she also ended up testifying before the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives and ended up being the first black woman to vote in a national election, nice. a U.S. national election, we should say. Um, and she passed away in 1893. Mm, wow. 
All right, the next young lady on our list is uh, Marie-Madeleine Jarrette de Vecher. Had to put a Quebecois on uh, there. Of course, <laughs> at least one. <laughs> May we? <oui. laughs> That's all my French right there. <laughs> Very nice. So Marie-Madeleine was born in 1678 in Vercher, Quebec. Uh, named after the family last name. She was the fourth child of Francois and Marie. And uh, her father had come from France as a soldier in 1665. He was 24. His regiment was disbanded. And if you listen to our Fille Roi episode, uh, that company was the company of soldiers that the Fille Roi were brought over partially to marry because there were cool. all these just single soldiers roaming about the right. colony and that's a about terrible this, idea dangerous yes. single men <laughs> just horny roaming single around. men right so the fille de roi were brought over at this time now i think that maybe the fille de roi arrived after because her father uh francois married a 12 and a half year old peasant girl <laughs> so maybe the fille de roi hadn't made it down the river yet but anyway so marie her mother was uh, quite young mm. and um but her father was a nice guy. Uh, his Frontenac, his superior, tried to submit papers for to uh, make him a noble, but it never huh. went through. So anyway, he was he was like a big colonizer, and the family had a prominent position in the colony, is what I'm trying to say. So they were granted land on the south side of the St. Lawrence. Uh, they had a couple islands added to the parcel, oh. and they named it Vercher after their family last Must name. They have just a couple islands. To just a in. couple islands. I know I saw that. I was like, oh, I want two islands. <laughs> two islands. One isn't enough. <laughs> One is not enough. So uh, the family built a settlement, and they built a fort, and w- I think of forts as like big military installations, but the way the my reading was, go- was describing is that almost every family or every senior at least would build a fort for the protection of all the families living and working on their land Hmm. and you had to do this because you were under so much danger by iroquois attack and they were being attacked regularly and you would lose people right and left to iroquois attacks and this is maybe understandable from like an anti-colonialism point of view where you're moving on to these people and they're gonna attack you so but put that aside the the uh, family have to defend themselves so they built a fort uh, and this is just like post just log for you know it's pretty mm-hmm. basic um and the so the family had workers living on the land um and marie madeleine had many younger siblings six siblings were born after her she was fourth and then more were born later um and some of <laughs> her families. older siblings were married i know I these families <laughs> were massive yeah so she uh, some of her older siblings were married by the time this big attack happened on the family and her sister had already lost two husbands oh to iroquois attacks his poor sister and marie madeleine had lost a brother so they had all suffered these really personal losses to the iroquois already so these attacks were something to be feared very much um and so in 1690 the settlement was attacked uh, the Iroquois knew it was not heavily defended and a whole group of them hid in the woods and then attacked and they kidnapped a group of 20 field workers at like 8 a.m. in the morning. Mm. Uh, it was October. And Marie's mother was away. Her father was away. Or no, sorry. Her mother was there, but her father was away. And um, her mother took control. Her mother was only 33. She's wow. already got like 10 kids. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> And there were very few men around the fort to help with the defense. So her mom took charge and she took command. She repulsed the attackers multiple times. So they attacked multiple times. They fought them off and the attack lasted two days and the group only lost one guy. So it was L'Esperance. (laughs) So, so not bad. I mean, pretty, yeah, pretty commanding. And you can see where Marie Madeleine got her strength from. She's got this strong mom who's not afraid to step up and take charge. So two years later in 1692, the same scene repeats, but this time her mom and her dad are gone. So Marie Madeleine is alone, not alone, but her parents aren't there at the fort 
and another Iroquois group attacks. She's 15 years old. Everyone in the field starts running for the fort when the attack goes on or when the attack starts, Marie is caught by her kerchief by an Iroquois <laughs> warrior, like around her neck, unties it and bolts and makes it to the fort, which wow. is the most terrifying thing I've ever read. <laughs> no. Like, Oh, he's got you by the scarf. My God, <laughs> the presence of mind to undo <laughs> right, it. To, like, undo it and, that's amazing. Race to the fort. She shuts the gate behind her. Uh, there's only one soldier on duty. <laughs> so she runs up to the top of the fort so she can see what's going on. She puts on a soldier's hat and starts shouting commands uh, at everyone in the fort. And I guess there were a couple of women who were wailing because they had seen their husbands dragged off, which, okay, understandable. Um, and so Marie Madeline starts shouting commands. She grabs a rifle and shoots it off, which alerts all the neighboring forts, um, everyone within, within hearing distance. Um, and so she knew that reinforcements would hopefully soon arrive um and she starts making a lot of noise and like i don't know making it look like there's more people in the fort than there were she said she was trying to do everything she could to make it seem like there were lots of people in the fort so um eventually the iroquois clear off with a bunch of the hostages um some of them were later released to the family but not everyone came back and after the the iroquois group had left about a hundred french settlers arrived as backup but by mm-hmm. that point they didn't need them um and so she was credited with basically saving, saving everyone that day. was in the fort because she sounded the alarm. She shut the gate. She had the presence of mind to take command. So, wow. you know, she's her mother's daughter. And later in life, she sailed to France twice to wow. petition. There was like this court battle between them and some, I don't know, neighboring family. And it went up through the courts of Canada and she didn't like the, that she lost. So she sailed to France and wow. went to the courts there and got it changed in her favor. And um, anyway, so amazing. She married, she saved her husband from an Iroquois attack. There were two Iroquois attacking him and she fought off one of them while her husband fought the other. And then a group of Iroquois women who are with them attacked her and her son (laughs) helped her 12 year old son helps fight them off. So this family is literally in hand to hand combat with (laughs) natives like on a regular basis, but such is life in (laughs) the 1600s in New France. Uh, so she died in 1747. She was 69. And I like this. She was buried under her pew in the parish church. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Cool. yeah. <laughs> but cool. <laughs> so, wow. Anyway, strong lady. No kidding. <laughs> All right. So um, the next lady on our list, uh, another story of, of native attack and, oh <laughs> and dealing with that. Such a complicated history, really. I mean, it's like, you know, you're rooting for people who are trying to save themselves from attack. Right. But at the same time, it's like, you get why <laughs> you're attacked. sort of rooting for the attackers yeah. <laughs> at the same time. Oh. Yeah. Complicated. Yeah. Um, now I have a particular connection to this, to this lady that uh, we'll tell you about at the end here, but um, Elizabeth Turner was born in Maryland about 1770 or maybe a little bit before then. Um, and her family were farmers. They had a sugaring camp that they kind of ran with the neighboring family and the, uh, the kids, uh, Elizabeth and her friend and like their brothers, they would often be out in the woods, like, you know, tending to the maple trees or whatever you do mm-hmm. for sugar, yeah. you know all that stuff. Um, so, um, this was in, um, around Pittsburgh. Uh, the family had moved there by 1780 or so. And at this time, the Wyandotte 
tribe had really been trying to push back against white settlement with a lot of raids uh, where they would kill livestock and then sometimes they would kidnap uh, some of the white settlers. So unfortunately for Elizabeth, she was out in the woods one day with um, her brothers and some friends and they were attacked and two of the boys were killed and Elizabeth and a couple of the other uh, kids were taken captive and she was um, a teenage girl at this point. Uh, so they, uh, the Wyandotte tribe took the, took her with them, um, leaving Pittsburgh and they kind of slowly traveled to some of the other native villages on the lower and upper Sandusky rivers and eventually to the shores of Lake Erie. So during this period of several years, when she was a captive, she quickly became very, no very well known, uh, among the Wyandotte for her bravery. Uh, just a couple of stories to illustrate that. Um, so at, at one point she was working on a corn patch and she had um, some some native women were with her uh, and these native women decided to take a break and they they quit and they sat in the shade and stopped working uh, so Elizabeth thought like I want a break so she also <laughs> stopped working and went and sat in the shade while her uh, her companions did not like this and they threatened her but she stood up to them so forcefully that they ran back to the camp and reported her to the chief um, but the chief and his friends were very amused uh, by this incident <laughs> and they praised her for their for her bravery and uh, later she later in life she said it wasn't bravery it was simply desperation um, eventually the Wyandotte admired her spunk so much that they adopted her into their tribe and they treated her as a sister and treated her as well as they did any other um, uh, woman in their community and so she she tried her best to kind of keep her spirits high and not let herself be bullied and she got this reputation um, of standing up for herself so they ended up giving her the name Chestnut Burr <laughs> um, because they said she would sting like a burr whenever someone uh, bullied her um so she did not live out her days in uh, capture. In the fall of 1782, uh, the Wyandotte who had her with them uh, left Sandusky, that area, and they traveled north. And eventually they met a Shawnee tribe. And Elizabeth noticed that one of the uh, people in this community was a white man, even though he dressed and acted like uh, a member of that community. And she discovered that he was a trader who had been adopted by the native trader, um, T-R-A-D-E-R, -E not a traitor, I should say. <laughs> um, so he had been adopted by the Shawnee tribe and he had been them been with them for eight or nine years and his name was Alexander McCormick. Uh, so Alexander McCormick, of course, was also surprised to see a white woman with the Wyandotte tribe and he quickly took a liking to her and it sounds like it took him a while to convince her, but eventually he convinced her to marry him. Um, the problem was the native, the Wyandotte, uh, community liked her so much by this point that they didn't want to give her up. So, uh, Alexander ended, uh, ended up having to try to, um, bargain with them and pay them to, <laughs> oh, no. to let them, uh, uh, let him marry her. Um, and eventually they agreed and then the day came and they went back on their word. And so <laughs> he finally, he got fed up and, and the two of them decided that they would just run away. So, uh, they came up with this plan in the spring of 1784 
So Alexander, he was a trader, of course, so he had been collecting furs and skins, um, and he was going to be taking them to Detroit to trade, as he had always done. So he came up with this plan that he would meet Elizabeth and hide her in the bottom of his canoe and cover her over with all of these pelts. (laughs) So they did this. Of course, eventually, the Wyandotte missed her, and they had a good sense of where she might be, so they (laughs) ran off to find Alexander McCormick, and they suspected that maybe she was hiding somewhere in the canoe so they started searching through the canoe and like peeling back all of these layers of furs and apparently they got to the point where there was just like a few skins left in the bottom of the canoe and she was right underneath them and then for some reason they they gave up and, uh, oh, and it's uh, such a good movie scene i know right it's so like harrowing yes, yes. uh so alexander and elizabeth got away and they um they traveled to detroit and stayed with one of his friends there uh, um, and then they were married in May of 1783 by an Anglican minister. Um, and it should be noted that Alexander was at least 40 years old and Elizabeth was 21 <laughs> when they were married. Um, so the next year, by the next spring, they had a son named William, uh, who, uh, was the first of a family of four sons and four daughters. Again, big families. So when William was born, uh, Elizabeth wanted to to try to get back to her family and take him for a visit in to Pittsburgh. Her family all this time had no idea where she was. They probably figured she was dead. Uh, so she, it must have been a, a bit of an argument, but she convinced <laughs> Alexander to let her do this. And for whatever reason, he couldn't travel with her. She took with her a, um, a native uh, friend of hers. And the two of them, Alexander gave them a couple horses. And she carried William in her arms, this baby on her back, and her trusty bean pot, which is how she cooked all of her meals. And they traveled this very arduous journey all the way back to Pittsburgh. She stayed with her family for a while and then they made the return trip back, (laughs) which is just so cool. I always think of the family at that point in the story, your daughter who's been kidnapped as a, as a tween basically comes back as a young woman alive, married as a baby. Like that would be, it's Lazarus back from the dead. It would be absolutely incredible. It's crazy. Yeah. That happen. Exactly. So, uh, she gets back and, um, by this point, the American revolution had ended and Alexander McCormick made a decision. He was sympathetic to sympathetic to the British. He was a loyalist and a lot of the Americans considered him an enemy. So he decided, uh, um, somewhere between about 1788 and 1793 that they would move um, across the Detroit River. And they ended up settling in Colchester Township, which, again, is very, very close to where we are right now. Yeah, less than an hour drive, maybe less half an, an hour, hour away. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, so this was a very unsettled country, and they ended up um, trading and farming, uh, and having a really good life and a happy marriage. Um, eventually Alexander died and Elizabeth moved to a well-known Island around here, Point Pelee, because her son, William had moved his family there in 1834, uh, taking his wife and 11 children. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, William, uh, was the first white, owner, and there's a lot of history about Pelee Island, very interesting place, uh, but he was the first white owner of of that island, and that's uh, the McCormick family settled there and, and were very strong there, um, as well as having relatives in Colchester, 
Um, so Elizabeth spent her final years on Pelee Island, and uh, in 1839, she was visiting friends back in Colchester, and she died at the age of 77. Um, the personal connection is that I'm proud to say Elizabeth Turner is one of my ancestors. Yay. Uh, my my grandmother on my father's side um, traces uh, her roots back to uh, to Elizabeth Turner. And I always really loved the descriptions of Elizabeth Turner reminded me a bit of my grandmother, actually, <laughs> uh, this small woman, powerful, um, wouldn't let anything stop her. And gutsy. Gutsy. Yes. Chestnut burr. And the connection that I have is that I worked on Peely yes. Island for a number of summers at an organization called the Peely Island Heritage Center, which is my little plug for them today. Because if you visit the island, you have to visit the museum. It's right off the dock. And you can actually see the bean pot that Elizabeth yeah. Turner traveled with. They the have it pot. on display there. <laughs> and so I, I got to um, you know care, be the caretaker of Elizabeth, Elizabeth Turner's bean pot for three <laughs> summers. Um, they have a display about her so that was the first time I heard about her about her and then when Dana said well I'm related I was like what <laughs> you're so cool <laughs> so, <laughs> so jealous yeah so we, we both have some pretty awesome connections yeah <laughs> all right the next lady on our list is Viola Desmond oh. and she's been in the news lately uh as we said at the beginning she's going to be the face on the back of the Canadian $10 bill so it, you may have heard of her, but if not, if you see a lovely young woman on the back of the bill, you will now know who she is. So that's Viola. Uh, so well, and I like, there'll be two ladies on the 10. That's correct. Queen on yeah, one queen side, on side Viola, Viola on the other. I've got a quote for that at the end. Oh. Wait, wait and see. Well, okay. so, so Viola Desmond is known for being a civil rights icon in Canada and an entrepreneur, which I did not realize and found really neat. Mm -hmm. um, and she's called the Canadian Rosa Parks, but... Really, Rosa Parks should be called the American Viola Desmond. That's right. Because Viola took a stand nine years before Rosa refused to get off the bus. So mm -hmm. there you go. <laughs> um, so Viola Desmond was a Nova Scotian woman who refused to give up her seat in the whites-only section of a movie theater. And they wanted her to move to the cheaper seats further back that were usually used by color patrons. And she refused. So... <laughs> um, she was born and raised in Halifax. Now, I didn't read this in the research, but I suspect it was probably in the neighborhood of Africville, which is where most mm, yeah. um, of the, the colored members of the city lived, which is awful that <laughs> um, they would call it that. But uh, she was always ambitious. Her parents were really active in the black community, um, and she set out to establish a business at a time when opportunities would have been very limited for her as a person of color and as a woman. So mm -hmm. she was a real fighter um, and very entrepreneurial. So she found a beauty school in Montreal that would accept black students. Um, she studied at the Field Beauty Culture School there. That's a great name. And she came home to Halifax and opened Vi's Studio of Beauty and Culture. <laughs> And it was a, a Halifax beauty and parlor shop, or sorry, beauty parlor and shop that catered specifically to black women. Um, and she didn't stop there. She also opened the Desmond School of Beauty Culture. So she had students coming in all the time that she taught and launched a line of products sold awesome. at the shops. Uh, so her graduates would go on to open their own shops and they would sell her products. So it was like really wow. savvy. Yeah. She had a lot, like a lot of income streams, you, well, would, you would say today. Because I'm sure there were like no other products specifically 
designed for black women and black hair. Yes, I can see maybe there being some American ones about, like, but maybe. it would probably be very difficult. Nova to, Scotia, right, right at the time. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and they in the research there were some pictures with like compacts of um, or like the the tins that mm-hmm. her products were sold in, and it had her sort of like beautiful bust on it. Oh, and, awesome! And it, it was like crea- uh, created by Viola Desmond. Oh, <laughs> she was like the face of the company. I love it. Yeah, it was really really cool. So so she was uh, you know stylish and beautiful and well quaffed um so fast forward to november 8th 1946 she's a successful businesswoman she's 32 years old she's having her car fixed and they said come back in a couple hours so she's got a couple hours to kill and no wheels so she decides to see a movie at the roseland theater in new glasgow uh so the theater was divided into the front section which was a penny more than the back section and there weren't explicit rules about where you would sit but it was like implied or implicit that mm-hmm. the white people would sit in the front and, and black people would sit in the back. So she paid the lower price, went in and sat in the front seats. Um, and then when an usher asked her to move, she said she refused. And she said, but I'll pay for the upgrade for these seats because yeah. she really hadn't paid for those mm-hmm. the, the front seat price. But they wouldn't let her pay the difference. <sighs> and the usher went to get the manager and the manager physically dragged her out of the the theater wow so she's bruised and kind of battered and they called the police and she was arrested she was um, arrested arrested for one cent um and <sighs> she spent the night in jail oh my God. um and was released the next day uh after, after having to pay a 20 dollar fine and six dollar court costs wow. and the charge was that she was defrauding the provincial government because of the, the one cent difference in the amusement tax um, <laughs> so defrauded <laughs> the government. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, she, you know, she's, she's bruised, she's shaken, she's angry. So she hires legal counsel and appeals right away, mm-hmm. but loses. Um, and the Canadian government now says like, you know, the, the government then just wasn't ready to recognize wow. racism and segregation and all of this. So she lost, um, which really upset her and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, despite her appeals, it was never overturned. So she becomes really active in the Nova Scotia, um, Association for the Advancement of Colored People, so like the NAACP in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1954, the province's segregation laws were abolished. So the work of her and that organization did bring change, mm. which is wonderful. Um, but she received a lot of negative attention. I mean, you can imagine in the, the 40s and 50s, this mm-hmm. woman standing up to the system and how much, um, you know, it's basically like online trolling just yeah. <laughs> in person. Uh, it took a really big toll on her. Uh, she ended up divorcing. She shut down her business. She wanted a fresh start. So she moved back to Montreal where she had gone to school. And I guess it didn't work out because she eventually moved to New York um, and never really recovered, which is, oh, wow. which is tragic. Yeah, yeah. I was reading about this and she died alone at age 50, 1965, um, in New York and you know, it just seems like such a tragic end, such That's a lonely so end yeah. to, yeah, to this like strong entrepreneurial successful woman ugh, that, that this racial issue would result in all of that. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, but you know, eventually the government and Canadians realized that this had happened. And in 2010, the Nova Scotia government made a, a posthumous apology and pardon. So mm. she, she was eventually <laughs> pardoned. Um, and another really strong figure, Desmond's sister, Wanda Robson, um, is this like old lady and like super active still. And she's traveling the country and speaking with anyone that will have her speak to them um, about her sister. She 
She wrote a book called Sister to Courage about uh, Viola's life. And uh, the book was published in 2010. In 2014, the Canadian Museum of Human Rights added a display about Viola. And uh, New Glasgow, which I think is really appropriate, opened an outdoor theater and named it after oh, Viola Desmond. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I was that's like, very awesome. yes, New Glasgow. <laughs> um, and Government House in Nova Scotia has a portrait of Viola hanging there. Uh, there is now a Heritage Minute about her refusal, <laughs> which you're not a Canadian historical and like we said before she's she's going to be gracing the ten dollar bill um and so her sister has carried on her legacy mm. um and a quote from wanda robson her sister uh she was commenting about the queen being on the bill and she said well uh, if you want another person other than the queen to be on the bill you've chosen the right person <laughs> <laughs> so there you awesome go. All right. So the last lady I have is uh, somebody that I actually talked about um, several episodes ago. Uh, I don't remember what episode it was and why I brought her up. But anyway, um, the point is back in April, I got the opportunity to witness this lady in action at the Supreme Court. Um, and of course, I'm talking about Beverly McLaughlin, who is currently the uh, chief justice uh, on Canada's Supreme Court. Um, and she's a pretty cool lady, I, especially after going and seeing uh, that hearing. I wanted to learn more about her, and I thought it would be totally appropriate to put her on the list, especially since she announced just this month that she will be retiring in mm -hmm. December and stepping down as uh, Canada's first female chief justice. Very nice. Uh, so big shoes to fill. She's also the only currently living lady on our list today. That's so, very true. Yes. Yeah, so she's yes. the current woman. Yeah holding it down for the living ladies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so Beverly was born near Pincher Creek, Alberta, and that's where she was raised. And she was the oldest of five children. I feel like there's been a couple of ladies on our list who are the oldest of yes. pretty large it's families. a lot of oldest sisters yeah, yeah they're kind of like that yeah you know pressure to like do everything <laughs> succeed. and yeah succeed yeah. and do everything <laughs> um so uh her parents uh, were ranchers and farmers so she grew up uh, as a farm girl which is pretty cool in uh, 1967 she married rory mclaughlin um unfortunately he died in 1988 of cancer so they didn't have a, a super long married life together but they did have one son angus um and and in 1992, she married again a man named Frank McArdle and all that to get, you know, out of the way, her personal life, because her <laughs> professional life is the the best stuff, I think, or the <laughs> the most interesting and the most impressive stuff. Um, so apparently she hadn't really ever considered a career in law until she was persuaded by her first husband and a professor that a tough-minded woman could break through the institutional barriers of the predominantly male legal profession. So she went on and got a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the University of Alberta. And then uh, at the same school, she attended law school and was called to the bar in 1969. And her first job as a lawyer was with the Edmonton firm Wood, Moyer, Hyde, and Ross. Very lawyery <laughs> sounding firm, yeah. <laughs> so eventually she ended up moving to British Columbia and uh, became a tenured law professor at the University of BC. And she was there in fr uh, from 1974 to 1981. 
And then all of it, like just a meteoric rise. And that's yeah. the phrase that I've seen in multiple places hmm. describing her. Because at the age of 37 wow. in 1980, she was appointed to the County Court of Vancouver. A year later, she was elevated to the BC Supreme Court and in 1985 to the BC Court of Appeal. Uh, and in 1988, so like eight years after she became a judge, she became the chief justice of British Columbia. And then uh, one year later, in 1989, at 45, she became um, a Supreme Court justice, which is pretty dang cool. Uh, and then, you know, about 11 years later, um, on January 7th, 2000, she became our first female chief justice, um, our country's 17th chief justice, interestingly enough. Mm. And also, um, she was our first female chief justice, also the first female chief justice of any Commonwealth nation's Supreme Court. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. I know. That's it's huge. Depressing, but exciting. I know, yeah. <laughs> it took a while, like 2000. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Hmm. But she, she's so she's had quite a tenure, obviously, 17 years. Um, That's a long time. It's a very long court. time. And she is the longest serving Chief Justice. Oh, In cool. uh, mid 2013, she passed uh, William J. Ritchie as the longest oh, wow. serving Chief Justice right. of uh, the Supreme Court. Um, so, as the uh, Chief Justice, as the, the Supreme Court, um, her position has always been. Um, uh, one of kind of a centrist um, uh, mindset, and okay. she's really helped define the our Supreme Court to be more of a um, measured centrist um, institution. And she always sought unanimous decisions among the nine justices whenever she could, um, which has led to our Supreme Court being a um, quite effective and quite. Um, measured hmm. institution. And it's interesting because people comparing um, our Supreme Court to the Supreme Court in the U.S., um, that's a much more divided hmm. uh, court. And you've got people who are kind of on the far left, on the far right. And um, our Supreme Court is kind of much more known for just kind of looking at the merits of of a hearing and a case and, and kind of coming to a rational agreement as much as possible. And that's really come in thanks nice, in large yeah. part to Beverly McLaughlin. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot here. I, I, we don't have time to, unfortunately, to go into <laughs> everything that she's done, but uh, she's been very active um, in issues of access to justice and social justice. And she's become a champion of Aboriginal rights. Um, and under her kind of tenure as chief justice, uh, gradually the notion has become entrenched that governments must consult and accommodate origin Aboriginal people before making decisions that could affect their rights, um, and claims, which seems like a no brainer, but right. right. <laughs> you know, change is small. <laughs> um, so she's been kind of a, um, slow and steady, kind of a mindset when it comes to judgments and, mm. and making change to the justice system. And she has favored incre incremental changes based on um, kind of fact and careful consideration. 
Um, so she also um, really championed greater communication among the justices. Apparently before her <laughs> tenure, uh, their communication tended to consist solely of like inter-office memos that they would like, have slipped beneath each other's doors. When you're describing these changes she implemented, I'm like, what was it like before? I know. It must have just been a mess, like a fractious, non-communicating. <laughs> well, it wasn't that bad, I <laughs> but think. I, but no, probably yeah. not. But it just seems like the things she brought in are what you would hope it would be anyway yeah. and yeah she's kind of a good her like leader really a right, good manager yeah. yes yes um so she's again she's really uh brought forward the the idea that they need to try to to communicate more and come to unanimous decisions which they often do and nice. the hearing that i was at um i think i talked about this in that previous episode but mm -hmm. it was a unanimous decision which was really really cool because it was interesting to see them all kind of having some back and forth and asking different questions and like it was clear that there were different viewpoints mm. but in the end they were able to kind of come together and and decide mm. unanimously what what they uh what they wanted that's great yeah like bipartisanship to yeah, get exactly. things done that's really nice yeah it's an effective yeah. way to get things yeah. done um right. so just uh, uh you know of course there's <laughs> any chief justice there's contentious things over the years and you can read about that she's made her share of unpopular decisions and very popular ones um she spent some time at odds with uh stephen harper oh Go back. I was going <laughs> to say, as we should hope, but yeah. exposing uh, our political views. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you can you can look those up. There's some interesting kind of uh, debates <laughs> that they had. Um, and uh, in the end, um, she has said that she's approached the rating of judgments as an act of love and craftsmanship. Mm. And she aspired above all to write clearly in a manner that was accessible to both the public and the legal profession, which is a very... Yes noble aim and as somebody who works for um, an organization that supports access to justice and social justice um, and public participation in the legal uh, landscape it's it's really great that yes. the person kind of at the very top of our of our legal establishment espouses those views so and, i think she's really that. cool yes yeah and as someone who teaches professional communication that also warms my heart exactly it's <laughs> important yes so as i said uh, uh chief justice mclaughlin will be retiring from the bench on december 15th 2017 so we'll be looking to see who her uh um successor thank you <laughs> yes with interest nice. congratulations to her on a long and successful yes, career absolutely all right, and last on our list oh, of exciting my ladies, friends, we are ending with a bang. And as <laughs> I said, we had some discussion before we started recording. Um, uh, Heather had stumbled across this lady and was going on and on and on about her. And I eventually said, you know, I think maybe you should do this lady instead of somebody else who we had also had on the list. And after some back and forth, we decided to bump Laura Secord for... For Cougar Annie. <laughs> Dana saw all my arm waving during oh God. my story about Cougar Annie. And she that's basically the barometer. The more yeah. my arms flail about, the more there, and as I bump my stand. <laughs> the more we know uh, that we should include someone. Yeah, so Cougar Annie is so hilarious and <laughs> exciting and crazy that she bumped somebody else off the list who, you know, arguably had much more of an impact on the country. So Cougar Annie is just sort of your... 
she's a she's a common citizen. She didn't change the course of Canadian history or politics, but she's such a character that <laughs> I, I hope you will agree that it's worth putting her on the list. So we want somebody do. really really <laughs> razzle dazzle at the end here. Okay, so <laughs> Cougar Annie is an eccentric West Coast pioneer woman that you've probably never heard of, but uh, after this episode, I hope you're a fan. So she was born in 1888. Her full name was Ada. Annie Ray Arthur, and she immigrated to Canada from Glasgow, Scotland. So she had a tough life. She basically (laughs) fought against the odds and worked hard against the odds her whole life. And this started even back in Scotland before she came to Canada. So she was married to a man named Willie Ray Arthur. And he was just Willie Ray Arthur. Well, Ray Arthur is a hyphenated last name, but I'd like to call him Willie Ray because it sounds like (laughs) just a scumbag name. So he was just like a real dud of a husband. And it starts out, he's an opium addict. So this is not great. And he was a classic remittance man. So there was a whole category of people, uh, you know, in, in sort of like... Uh, British upper class society or respectable families who would have these deadbeats in the family and they basically didn't want to be embarrassed by them but they don't want to completely disown them they can't get rid of them so what they do is they say we will pay you a monthly sum to just get out of here like, go live anywhere else and stop embarrassing us and we'll just send you cash and as long as you stay away and don't bother us we'll keep sending cash so this class of people came to be known as remittance men and Willie Ray Arthur was a remittance man so they have three kids together. She's got this like debut husband and his family says, get out of here. And so the family goes, all right, we'll go, you know, the end of the earth, we'll go to BC. So, so they sail to Canada. They land, um, on the BC coast. They arrive with three kids. They have five more while they're living in Canada and they settle in an area called boat basin. Now this is uh, maybe a couple hours boat ride from Tofino, BC. So if you're familiar with Tofino, um, you can get to boat basin from there. And, they were lured, to, not lured to Canada, but interested in coming because the Canadian government had a plan to attract settlers, well, white European settlers, <laughs> by giving them free land. Mm-hmm. So the um, the Ray Arthur family thought, okay, great. Um, and they, re- they were receiving money from his family and now they're getting free land. So, okay, we can make a start for ourselves. But the coastline is rocky, rugged. It's like untouched, virgin, thick rainforest. So if you know how to make a living from that, fine. But if you're a settler, you're going to have to clear like rainforest, right? so this this is going to be tough, and it's lots of manual labor required to make it suitable for agriculture. If that's what you want to do, so they carve out a homestead. It's got a two hectare garden, and they start up a mail order nursery business. Now this sounds like a lot of work, yeah. and it was, and most of it was done by Cougar Annie. <laughs> so, so one of my favorite details of her life is that Willie disliked manual labor. He was just this like I don't know lazy layabout. So she was like, fine, you watch the kids, wash. The the dishes since that's all you can do and i'll do all the rest of the work so that's what she did she ran the business and he was just like i don't know just laid about the house and <laughs> made sure that kids didn't die so so <laughs> willie anyway 1936 willie drowns he meets his pathetic end <laughs> I, I really have no idea what happened poor man but he, he drowns so oh, willie. um most women in cougar annie's situation would have packed up and been on the next steamer out like get me out of this forested just crazy place uh but annie loves it she loves her home she's worked so hard to build it so she says no i'm not going anywhere i'll just find a new man so does she go about it the typical way no she starts advertising no she puts ads in farming magazines and newspapers okay and one of these ads reads i quote bc widow with nursery and orchard wishes partner 
object matrimony. <laughs> to <laughs> the point. That's her whole ad. I, I like think she's it. paying by the letter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, this works. She marries three more times and she has a kind of a rough string of, of uh, you know, husband. Not that the husbands are rough, but uh, she's got some rough luck with husbands. So Willie has drowned. The second husband dies after accidentally shooting himself in the leg. So that sounds pretty awful. Uh, The third husband dies of pneumonia. The fourth tries to push her off a cliff. So she runs him off the farm with a shotgun. (laughs) I mean, fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. Exactly. What what kind of spouse tries to push you off a cliff? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So... I mean, Cougar Annie sounds like a fiery woman. So I feel like there are two sides to that story, but nobody should be pushing anybody off a cliff. So, okay. So, so she goes to her four husbands and decides, well, that's it. Anyway, her kids, she had eight kids. They were raised under a regimen of chores and discipline. And you can tell she's a strong, tough-minded woman. The kids leave as soon as they are old enough to leave. (laughs) Nobody sticks around. They're like, get me out of this. Well, maybe it was her being like, Go, go out living. in the world. This is true. This is true. I shouldn't assume they're like, get me away from the granny. <laughs> but uh, Maybe. Her, none of the kids take over the farm mm. is basically the situation. So she, she during these years, she also acted as postmistress for the community. She ran her garden nursery. They carried over 100 varieties of flowers, shrubs, trees. And she becomes a local legend for her eagle eye shooting. She had <laughs> amazing aim and wielded this rifle all over the place. Of course. And we saw one picture of her online. And she's just oh. this like grizzled old woman. And she's... She's cradling the shotgun. shotgun. Like she's not afraid to use it. So over her years on her farm, she's said to have killed 80 bears (laughs) and 62 cougars and hence the name Cougar Annie. Uh, And she lives until 97. Of course she does. Of course. Of course. And she dies in 1985. So she overlapped with us by one year. Oh my (laughs) gosh. So. Uh, if you want to know more about Cougar Annie, she had a friend near the end of her life. His name was Peter Buckland. He was like a stockbroker from Vancouver <laughs> or something. And he, I don't know how he ran into her. Oh, he stopped on the road to buy some eggs. She was selling eggs <laughs> at the road, like a farm stand. And he stopped and just started chatting. And he said he had no idea it would turn into this lifelong friendship. And he said that he always joked that if they had been closer in age, if he had been older and she'd been younger, she would have made him her fifth husband. <laughs> but it was not to be. So... Probably the best. Probably, probably he would have died. Like an eagle would have carried him off or something. A cougar would have gotten him. So he um, purchased the property after her death and started the Boat Basin Foundation. Um, and so the property has been turned into this um, ecological foundation. So they, wow. they look at the land's ecological and historical, historical significance. Uh, they have the Temperate Rainforest Field Study Center. And they have six off-grid cabins. They've built them like from cedar on the property and all this stuff. So it's like this cool eco-farm research place now. Oh, wow. um, and Aunt Cougar Annie's house is still there. But it's like everything's kind of decaying and like crumbling back <laughs> into the earth. And like all her tools are still there hanging. And, you know, everything's kind of rusty. And so you can visit. They do take visitors, um, but they said you have to be physically fit and like determined. <laughs> this is not, and you, there's not even a landing. Like the boat will just take you to the shore, and you have to jump out oh my and like wade up the beach to this farm. So and now Heather's now determined to go there. I just added this to my list of like must dos in my tra- my life travel list. <laughs> but anyway, so if you want to know more about the legacy of Cougar Annie, but watch for cougars. When you're there. <laughs> I, you know, it's at, at the top of this. You said that she was, you know, kind of a, a woman who didn't have impact on the wider um face of our country but i don't know i kind of think she did there's this ecological (laughs) center there now sure sure and i love that she's kind of you know this 
determined, hardworking, gutsy, gutsy yeah. woman. Yeah. And she's sort of the t- the stereotypical gutsy pioneer woman. Yeah. You know, making yeah. an R on her own and carving a life from the forest. Awesome, and shooting cougars. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So. There you go. Cougar Annie. Cougar Annie. Well, she's a great way to end off, but (laughs) I think we've had a great assortment of of women from all walks of life. and grit and determination and hard work. And And that's what they have in common. You know, they've done true women we talked about. And of course there are (laughs) so many more, so many more amazing women in Canada's history. Um, And I'm sure we'll cover more of them. I wish we could have done 150 of them for the 150th anniversary, but that would just go on forever. Nobody would want to listen to that. (laughs) We're stopping those at the four hour mark. Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, still, those are eight ladies who maybe you haven't heard too much about before, if anything. Mm. And I think they do a decent job of kind of representing the um, the incredible legacy of Canadian women that we have in this country. And, and the variety and the diversity and the, variety, yeah. and the impact they can make. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Women, of course, have done just as much as men to, to build up our country. And uh, uh, it's very important that we remember their voices as mm-hmm. much as we yes. celebrate the more obvious kind of founders of our of our country. So, you know, John A. McDonald, you know, he maybe did a little bit, but uh, Cougar <laughs> Annie did her part too. Cougar so. Annie has her little piece of paradise. There you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think we should end by saying happy Canada day. Heather, what are you doing on Canada day? Gosh, I don't know. I'll probably make a strawberry pie and of wave course. some Canada flags around. <laughs> awesome. I have my uh, Canadian girls are the best t-shirt Perfect. that I trot out each Canada day and we'll probably get some fireworks and very dangerously light them off in the back <laughs> awesome. Rob is wont awesome. to do. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, on my part, I'll be, uh, <laughs> this is a little odd, but still exciting. I'll be marching in the Canada day parade in, uh, in Windsor, which is, that's not really the odd party. I'm, I'm, I'm part of that's a, pretty typical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm part of a community theater organization and they, uh, they march in the parade every year. But, um, the odd part is that, uh, on our 150th uh, birthday, I will be dressed as a princess. <laughs> <laughs> Women have come so far. I know. But you <laughs> so know what? I was, I was back and forth to the woman who's organizing this and our theater group has decided to appeal to the children and do like, <laughs> you know, kind of Disney-esque princesses and characters right, so we've got right. a whole bunch of costumes that we've that we've drug out and uh, uh i'm i think i'm gonna be kind of an off-brand cinderella so nice. watch out for that. Nice. but i was back and forth with the woman who was organizing this and i was kind of saying like i feel a little bit guilty that i'm as excited as i am about putting on a, a gold <laughs> enormous ball gown nice. and, and walking in a parade but you know what um, okay. Lots of princesses have been feminist too, and there we have go. covered some of them. So there you go. you'll be a progressive <laughs> feminist, princess, right? Gina. That's right. That's right. <laughs> on Canada Day. On Canada. But after that, I'll make sure to go put on my like you know Canadian T-shirt <laughs> and uh, have a few drinks and celebrate uh, our 150th birthday because yes. it's pretty dang cool. And we hope you have a great Canada Day. Absolutely. If you're listening to this on Canada Day, we hope it's been awesome. And if not, uh, we hope you have great plans lined up. <laughs> That's right. And uh, again, this is uh, this is it for the summer. So we'll wish you a happy Canada Day and a wonderful summer. And uh, you know what? I'm just not going to bother with um, all of the usual ending stuff because you've heard it before. Well, and you know our social media. Exactly. You know where to find us. Exactly. We're we're already running long. So we're good. We're good. <laughs> have a great summer. Stay safe. And happy Canada Day. Yeah, and, and we'll see you in the fall when we start launching again. 